one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hello, I'm Michael Chakraverty. And I'm Mark Watson. And this is the Menkind Podcast. We're going to take a deep dive into masculinity, exploring what being a man actually means, along with a variety of brilliant guests. You know, men talking about men is a notoriously underrepresented area of podcasting. Not anymore. Hello, happy Monday. How are you, Mark? Uh, very well, thank you. Michael, you don't often ask about my well-being, but it's... Uh... Doesn't go amiss. I like to think, as a friend, I do check in throughout the week, just to be clear. Just oh, not... yeah, we, we just don't normally do it in front of people. But uh, thank you for <laughs> I'm very well, Michael, and how are you? I am well. We have just had a myriad of technical issues, as it's quite apt, really, considering the chat we're about to have with Rick began with about 45 minutes of the spinning wheel of doom. Yes, we had a nightmare recording, Rick, and we've had a nightmare even recording this intro. And yet, we have accomplished both things. And it was a fun, I mean, we say it a lot, but... Often we say this was a really interesting or fascinating one. This, I'd say, was a more light-hearted conversation in, in a lot of ways. Before I do introduce you, though, how do you say your surname? Because people say mine wrong all the time when they introduce me, so I wanted to check I'm saying it well, right. I'm not really sure. I guess Samada. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get as close as we can, eh? I think Samada, but only because that makes my punning Twitter handle work. Samada. So, I noticed yes, that. I did enjoy yeah. that. So we'll go for Samada. Okay. It would be a bit Samada, of a waste yeah. of a surname like that if you didn't pun with it a bit. <laughs> exactly, so, yeah. You've got yeah. to commit to the joke. You can't really it. pun with a Chakraverti. Oh, Watson's useless. But at least I know, unlike both of you, I know 100% how to say my name. So I suppose mm. that's something. <laughs> Improvisation, my dear Mark Watson. Right, on we go. <laughs> the pun of the century. That was a one-off commission Mark did, I believe, for Dave. By a long stretch, <laughs> the worst title for a show there's ever been. <laughs> I do wish people would stop referring to that. <laughs> yes, despite some of the content, it was a real joy. So please, I guess, enjoy listening. Is that what we say? Uh, enjoy. I'll go further than that. Please definitely enjoy listening. I'm not even going to say I guess. So this week we are joined by Rick Samada, who is going to introduce himself, actually. Mark's here too, but Rick's more interesting. Rick, Rick, who are you, please? It's fair, it's fair. I am Rick Samada. I am a writer, a journalist, an actor, a broadcaster, just a general good guy. Just an amazing man. <laughs> Which of those do you prefer? Which one? But it's an interesting question how you mainly see yourself because you do have a complex CV, it's fair to say. The thing about acting is it's like herpes. It never leaves your system, that acting bug. <laughs> That's the earliest mention of herpes we've had in an episode so far. <laughs> Straight off the bat. <laughs> That's almost unbeatable, actually. I'm not sure if we'll see that beaten. <laughs> the thing about acting is you spend most of the time resting, as they call it, unemployed. <laughs> and I've been resting for several years now, so I'm not sure in any other job I clearly wouldn't be an actor anymore. It would be time to accept that you didn't do that job anymore. Yes. Yeah. 
but you never really have to accept that with acting. So sometimes I call myself an actor, but I do other sorts of presenting and broadcast work. I like writer. I obviously yeah. worked as a journalist for a number of years, probably seven years maybe, but uh, probably I'll go back to it. But I didn't like the word journalist. And also it seemed to bear a sort of burden of integrity and sort of which you don't feel like you which I didn't re- I didn't feel like I warranted or wanted. I, I agree with you that writer has a certain um for a start it conjures somebody sitting in an attic or a hut or something with yes. quite a lot of leather-bound volumes around them. Sitting I think would be ambitious. I think I see myself lying down on an ottoman in a garret. Fair enough. <laughs> now I'm talking all these these professions I'm drawn to seem to involve a lot of resting. Yeah, there's a theme where you're normally, by your own account, largely horizontal. Yes. Cool boy, <laughs> actor, writer. I quite like cool boy, though. That's quite a cool, like, hi, I'm Rick, cool boy. No, cool boy, as in rent boy. I just... Oh. For the horizontal, sorry. Oh, I didn't get it. And Michael doesn't always know about sexual slang, I No. Right. <laughs> he doesn't Too have naive. A, a life experience. I have to often fill him in after the episodes. I, I tried to butter you up with the herpes and then go straight in with a... Oh, my word. <laughs> I don't think I've ever been buttered up with herpes before. <laughs> and that's the title of this podcast. No, I hope it isn't. I hope we say some other stuff. I hope that gets buried quite quickly. It's, it's the podcast. This now is the podcast. Rick and... has asked this question about five times over the course of the last... I'll tell you what, Michael. Why don't you ask one of our very few prepared questions, yes. Rick, so that we can at least lend the semblance of a podcast um, to this. Yes, of course. So, Rick, when you were growing up, what was one of the first times you remember being presented with a notion of masculinity? Well, Michael, I like to think of myself as perpetually growing up. Uh, it's not like a journey. <laughs> not me. I've stopped. I, I've reached my peak age. When did you peak? Uh, well, he I'm... peaked during this. There was a really brilliant Dave pilot, wasn't there? Shut up, <laughs> That was the highlight of my life, yeah. <laughs> Improvisation, my I'm, dear I'm, Mark Watson. I'm 40, and hopefully we might be able to come on to this with you a bit later, mm. Rick, but I'm quite fixated on the idea of, or unhealthily plagued by thoughts of death. And I mm. sort of do think that, I say we might get on to it because you've mentioned this in your writing as well. We will get on to Good. death. So anyway, I think my point is, you accept a certain number of birthdays roll around, but at 40, time is starting to take the piss out of me a bit. Mm. So I don't think I want to age too much closer to the old boneyard. Anyway. Your Wikipedia page says that you were born in 1979 slash 80. <laughs> I saw that and I, I do not understand why. It's that level of vagueness that I really admire. It, it's remarkable. Until recently, the real birthday was on there and then some prick has edited my wikipedia page in order to make it look as if my birthday is not known which is normally you only get that on wikipedia if you're like a dictator or a (laughs) mythical figure or something i mean my mum absolutely swears it was february 1980 and i don't see any reason to doubt her (laughs) she's got a bloody one of these plates with a stalk on it and the time of birth and everything i I can document it but wikipedia they're not having it why would the internet lie mark what have you got to hide why indeed <laughs> if it's like the birthday of mark anthony or something i'd understand it but it's reasonably easy to find out when i was born i mean mark watson of nazareth this is a really good answer to the question i asked rick sorry yes uh, i've got the question <laughs> so when yeah when did you first realize that maleness or being a man was a thing and carried certain expectations or images with it i suppose is the question i remember as a child there being a cultural idea of men that i just could not relate to mm. and they seemed to be Men seem to be some sort sort of ogreish figures that smelt and were quite oafish. Like the guy in the Twits, for example. Yes, exactly. And they had sort of one-track mm. minds. They couldn't really handle higher processing. Yeah. And they were just quite 
dumb and violent. But beyond that, so that was a cultural idea, but beyond that, I remember... Where did you, sorry to interrupt you, where do you think those ideas came from? Can you track them to specific versions of masculinity that you actually observed? Or was it in your head almost before you could even account for it? It was from TV. It was representations of guys in mm. sitcoms. Yeah. And I guess lazy writing, really, that reducing agenda to a, a pretty hackneyed yeah the idea of men having a one-track mind is an idea i remember hearing about from a very early stage and even as a six-year-old thinking mine's got a few tracks i think mm. it's, it's a lazy trope i mean men are a lot of things but they're generally not yes i mean no no human is a one-track mind is an impossible thing to have i'd love to have <laughs> a one-track mind it'd be much more restful what's really particularly interesting is that we've spoken to quite a few different people now and when we ask men about their childhood experience of when they saw other men and what masculinity was the common factor is that no one felt like they identified with it, mm. yet it still exists. Yes. So you're saying you saw it a lot from TV and things like that. Are there other areas that you think it kind of has come from or where do you think it exists? I specifically remember a frustration when I was shopping, you know, when I was young. and I mean, I guess sort of 20 years ago, so not even that long ago in the scheme of things. And just always seeing, like if you go into a shoe shop, there'd be rows and rows the walls be covered with women's shoes and then there'd be like three shelves at the back <laughs> that, that was the entire men's room yeah, yeah. and they all looked yeah. the exact same stick these on your feet and piss off home <laughs> <laughs> yes and the same with sort of i remember shirts i can't remember the names of the shops stuff like mr barrett or byright i don't know if i remember remembering these right but just really utilitarian like boxy shirts that never fit because mm. i was always quite small and i guess the idea of men was that they took up space. They were bulky. And so things just drowned me, clothes-wise. You still see these adverts on the tube or on public transport for shirts. And they, they always fascinate me because, again, they don't look like any man that I've ever really seen or thought of myself as being. These, the particular type of man that is like, it's places like, again, I don't really know the names, Lewin or mm. Charles Tyrrell, but it's this... This genre of mandom, which must exist, people must be buying those three shirts for £199, whatever it is. But they just, sometimes I look at them and think, this is absurd. Like ties especially, but even, almost every time I see someone in a smart shirt, I think, what the hell are you doing? But even looking at things like Marks and Spencers, like they've always got like gilets and, and yeah. check shirts that are rolled up at the sleeve, and they're all inexplicably in the hills all the time. And... <laughs> yeah, yeah. Maybe that's the answer. Maybe if we went to the hills, we'd see all, all the people that are parading around in this <laughs> Were there any role models that you looked up to when you were younger? Or was it just a feeling of not identifying with anybody? When I was young, I was actually fascinated with male beauty. And I still am, I suppose. Mm -hmm. I guess because there was this overwhelming cultural idea that men were not supposed to present themselves or be interested in style or elegance or grace or any of these supposedly sort of namby-pamby, more feminine concepts. So I always liked beautiful men. So I remember watching actors, people like Johnny Depp or Jude Law and you know, men that were beautiful and being sort of fascinated by that idea, especially if they were out with a woman and they were more beautiful than her. I thought that was really, mm. the fact that that seems surprising even today, you know, it's a man's place is not to be beautiful. That's, that's a role we assign to women. And so to have that sort of subverted or upended was always yeah. fascinating to me. And the idea of looking at another man and admiring him specifically for his beauty is definitely an alien idea. Like it's not an idea that we're 
encouraged or to it's nurture, seen I don't as, think. Or, or it's seen as gay. Yeah. And there's no middling line where yeah. a man is able to appreciate another man's beauty or what they look like or how, how inspirational you find them because th- therefore you must be romantically and sexually attracted to them, which isn't always the case. No, isn't always the case yeah. and certainly isn't something which people apply to women, is it? Women admire each other's beauty all the time. Absolutely. Quite. I always have this funny idea when I... I think I look at the way my female friends talk to each other and they're so supportive and they, you know, they talk about their appearance and, and all aspects of their life. And I thought if men had that same culture, I sort of think what it'd be like if I talked to my friend Tom and was like, I really like this cardigan on you. You've got a nice roughness with the jeans, but you've just softened it with this cashmere. That's beautiful. It really, it brings out your eyes and just wait the way you would look at me. It's, it's so true. I remember being in Canada with Simon Amstel, who is gay, Clang. obviously. And uh, is that Clang? I mean, oh, it's very it's famous, I suppose. Clang. Uh, I suppose so. I've met Al Gore, mate. Anyway, um, <laughs> I had just bought an absolutely plain black T-shirt from somewhere like Tottenham because I just needed a new T-shirt. And uh, Amstel looked at me and said, that is a wonderful colour on you. And I was almost literally stunned because it is. I, I was aware he was gay, but it wasn't about that. It was just, it was so rare that a man... Yeah. Mm. of any of any taste had ever said anything like that i was i literally didn't know how to respond i spent a long time thinking after that about how difficult it is for men to compliment each other and he didn't offer it in a remotely sexual way either he was just making the sort of observation that men are almost incapable of making <laughs> it seems to one what another. color was the top was it black it, that's the thing it was black it was just it was totally unremarkable it's a, it's a very flattering color <laughs> thank you michael i'm wearing it again today it if brings you brings out uh... the color of your heart i love this black on that's you. right yeah <laughs> Oh, my eyes really pop next to this jet black. <laughs> it's this pitch black. Yeah, well, it just, it, it, I suppose it projects some of the fear of the void, which uh, <laughs> I labour through my days with. One day there will be nothing but black. Anyway, back to you, Michael. 79 slash 80. Existentially vague. 80. It's 80, for Christ's sake. Early 80, admittedly. When was this when you were kind of beginning to kind of find yourself drawn to these things that weren't necessarily seen as stereotypically masculine? What kind of age were you? Um, young. As a child, I was always, I didn't embody any of these supposedly masculine ideas that we've been talking about. So I was small, I was full of feeling all the time. I was interested in feelings and talking. and Weirdo. Yeah. <laughs> well, exactly. How did you relate with your peers at the time? Like, did you have a tribe of people that were similar or did it kind of drive you in more inward, I suppose? It drove me inward. I didn't have well, any siblings. I was an only child. So I didn't have any brothers. I think maybe that's often how gender norms are sort of perpetuated through sibling relationships perhaps but I didn't have any of that so it was a sort of, a sort of petri dish and I had older parents as well so mm. I didn't have that communicative relationship with them about this stuff a lot of people have older parents I suppose but I see what you mean <laughs> that is a solid gag I'm trying to introspect deeply here give you some of the pearls Sorry. of my soul if you had to rate it Rick out of 10 what would you give him Sorry. it was a bit of improvisation my dear Samada <laughs> That is why you sit in the big chair. <laughs> you were saying um, you were saying something quite valuable, actually, much more valuable than a gag, which is that there wasn't an obvious place for you to go to. With... Hey, there is nothing more valuable than a gag, as you well know. Oh, great, because I do have a purpose. <laughs> well, in not in all circumstances. Ah, interesting. Yeah, so there wasn't necessarily anywhere for you to see these traits of yours reflected or to be able to work against them. No, so I my response, partly also in response to certain kinds of violence that I experienced when I was a child, but also just not feeling like a man. There was no place, no vessel that could contain how I felt about myself Mm. in relation to manhood or masculinity. So I I really rejected the idea of gender long before this was a sort of recognised cultural thing. 
Before it was cool to reject. Yes, yeah, before it was cool, I would reject. You were a trendsetter. Yeah. A lot of people we've spoken to have said basically that that the idea of gender was either meaningless or they were actually hostile to it. I was hostile. But we didn't have the mechanisms or the vocabulary, maybe. Yes. To actually make that leap. Exactly. I found it offensive. I was really offended if someone called me a man. Even today, I still I, I'm accepting it, but I don't. I don't relate to it. I was going to ask, yeah, how you relate to the term and to the ideas that go with it now compared with then. I still don't relate to it that much, but I think it's maybe useful for me to try to, because otherwise we can't move the conversation or our sense of ourselves forwards if I'm just not in relation to that term, because I am a man, you know, although I reject these restrictive gender norms, that's not from a place of feeling like biologically I'm, I'm something else mm. yeah i can accept that biologically i am a man it's just that culturally i think it seems like such barren ground for me i'm just not interested in that yeah you said you rejected gender norms like what norms can you name a couple ultra competitiveness a kind of disdain for <laughs> hygiene <laughs> suspicion of feeling um, just those sorts of the feeling thing really interests me because you were saying you were kind of driven inward when you were younger because there wasn't anyone to talk to what did that kind of do to how you related to the world if, if you're kind of processing everything internally and aren't able to articulate sometimes damaging feelings or definitely damaging things that are happening to you what did that do to your sense of self when you were growing up if you weren't able to kind of channel that anywhere well, I think it leads to a sort of warped, deformed personality which is driven with internal conflict and psychological minefield. <laughs> it's why we invited you on. <laughs> and a lucrative career later on in life. <laughs> well, I mean, you have spoken, you know, you've written very boldly about depression, suicidal ideation, bad states of mind. Would you, I mean, it's very complicated and it's not a helpful question to ask where these things... You'd better be leading up to a gag. Huh? <laughs> yeah. I suppose I'm interested in whether... <laughs> I mean, and depression comes from many... I'm suicidal, my dear Mark Watson. (laughs) Yeah, that didn't even get to pilot stage. It was... uh, That's their loss. It was an amazing pitch as well. (laughs) Do you feel that, and not just about yourself, but do you think that part of the reason why so many people's mental health is fragile is that far fewer of us fit into the sort of boxes that we've grown up with than... The women, I don't know what quote the question is, but even though I'm... Every episode, there's one of us fails to ask a question and it's really pleasing that it's not me this time. <laughs> I suppose it's difficult because I'm partly asking myself out loud as well because I've been depressed a fair bit in my life and I sometimes do ask myself whether it is heredity or, or you know, a product of my genes or upbringing or whatever or whether I am constantly trying to live up to something which is actually not possible mm. because it's some, more of a wiring problem. Mm. And you, you've made me think of it just because, you know, I wonder if... You get to a point in your life where who you are doesn't appear to fit with what they want you to be or there's going to be a sort of disconnect there which feels like it's a black Mm. hole for your brain to wander into basically. Yeah, I think there's a certain rootlessness and a kind of psychic homelessness that comes from not having any cultural Mm. place for you to relate to. Psychic homelessness is a brilliant phrase for that. Mm. I wish I'd said that in my question, but there we are. (laughs) Maybe that should be the title of the podcast, not kind of... I think it's better than the herpes thing probably. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but we'll see. See what else we get. (laughs) Yeah, and so the idea of categories which i've always as i've already said i i am quite suspicious of and i don't want to be pinned down to or defined but actually they can be quite comforting and grounding places in ourselves to have sort of archetypes or cultural models that we can pin ourselves to can actually anchor us in the world and in relation to other people and actually if you don't have that if you're just this sort of free-floating gaseous energy without being brought down to earth in some way 
there's not enough solidity to you. Presumably why a lot of men do sign up readily to this list of expectations is, as you say, it's a lot less frightening to fit those things than to be kind of, yeah, not having a definition, not having an identity or not fitting any boxes is is existentially a challenging thing. And going through the motions, I suppose, like doing the sports or being competitive, doing the sports, (laughs) you can tell I really understand what's going on. (laughs) Doing the sports. John Motson, (laughs) better watch out. Honestly, even if he tries to talk about sport, (laughs) his whole body changes. I've met a lot of people that aren't into sport, but I've never seen someone who is, he's the opposite of sport. He was born as the opposite of sport. His soul shrinks from sport. Oh, it just makes me clench. I love to do the kickball. Yes. (laughs) We had an episode with gay rights activist Riyadh. Cristiano Ronaldo. Uh, Yeah, that's right. Yeah. We had Ronaldo on and it was a very tricky chat, actually. It was uh, Riyadh Khalif. He was talking about how he once booted the ball back to someone in the park successfully, <laughs> even though he'd always been like low with football. And the there was this moment where he said, I made a joke about, oh, you missed your vocation. You should have been a footballer. And he said, yeah, I, I could have been, I could have been. And he and Michael looked at each other trying to conjure the name of one footballer that had ever existed. And it was an <laughs> amazing moment. I could have been Eusebio. <laughs> exactly. They didn't get anywhere near the great Portuguese. I'll tell you that right now. <laughs> It was fascinating. It's it's one of the things I find rewarding about this is Michael and I have almost, our reference points almost don't connect at all. I had to explain what Bovra was to him one time. (laughs) That's a fascinating conversation I wish I'd been a fly on the wall for. I love that thing of that little observation of, yeah, there is something about, I don't know if you guys have this, when the ball comes rolling towards you and that moment, the pressure of the moment, am I going to kick this back in an acceptable way? We discussed it in that episode and Michael obviously felt the exact same about it. But and I'm not a good footballer, but just because I've been doing it like I've played football on and off for a long time and but also because I'm the, the sort of man I am, I'm almost the opposite. I love it when I get mm. the opportunity I, yes. to join in just for a few seconds. And I think that is something interesting about the different types of men. You, in for that. you, you're able to join in yes. on something. For me, I'm about to be proven to be terrible at I'm, something. Mm. And that's the difference. Yeah, it's a kind of interesting yes. psychological difference. It's going to be proven that I'm unable to subscribe to what we yes. think men should be able to subscribe to is what's going to happen. It's to the me. point where you're either validated or negated. There's no sort of halfway house. <laughs> you're kind of... Exactly that. It's going to be a judgment. But kind of going back to the idea of so many men being drawn to the Mm. sport because that's an easy way of not having to think too much about your place in society I suppose and I'm not I'm not saying that sports people don't think and and all those kind of caveats attached to it but I think men being driven towards these stereotypically male activities it kind of gives you a club to join that means you don't have to worry about not existing in that world does that follow yes absolutely I used to be so judgmental about the sport people I, th- I know i sort of <laughs> lived in binaries where you are either thoughtful or interested in sports or you were i don't know but i just i've really softened because now i i see these places as just cultural theaters where we get to connect to ourselves in ways that are sort of handed to us so there are certain activities that are often seen as female and there are certain activities that are seen as male sport being an obvious example but actually they're just places where we can be together, be with people we love, do an activity we enjoy and talk. And actually there aren't that many other places to do that. I think that's really true and interesting. I've also, I mean, I'm the opposite. I'm, you know, always was into sport, but I've also, as I've got older, softened towards activities that I previously found uh, either ridiculous or uninteresting or whatever. I, I recognize almost anything humans do in groups now as just being part of a, I suppose a displacement activity in my case to, to not think about life too much or whatever it is that there's mm. like the fact that something is 
well, a cultural theatre, a channel for us to talk and interact with stuff, doesn't make it less valuable. It's kind of what our business as humans is, I suppose, in a way. Yeah. That's, I mean, I'm it's... still surprised you went for Eusebio as a reference, <laughs> though, for someone like not necessarily interested. I mean, he's a famous footballer, but he wouldn't be in the first 10 that most non-football fans mention. I'm delighted you picked it up. Remarkable. <laughs> yeah, of course, in his day, one of the greatest players in the world. But it's, again, I'm surprised. I suppose it, it sort of makes sense then that you became the, you know, an actor, a writer... Would you say you've ended up choosing activities which allow you to kind of, I don't quite what the phrase is, but ghost through different identities rather than nailing yourself down? Yeah, I'm, I guess I, I do like that idea of being fluid in identity and being interested in different things and taking on jobs that require some degree of empathy, which I'm interested in and understanding other people. So that's actually really interesting. I hadn't thought about that before, but yeah, the idea of Thank you. <laughs> Just now and again, I do I, yeah, I pr- prove my worth. He is now going to be unbearable. You're a total <laughs> footballer and broadcaster, Mark. It's remarkable, isn't it? I get up and down the pitch. I really do. I've got a good engine, as they say. In the <laughs> yeah, jobs that don't pin me down too much. So I can move about and be different people and express different facets of myself. I'm really drawn to that. I think that that's sort of what I've tried to do as well by being a performer, except that I am a comedian and I basically am performing under my name and saying things which, broadly speaking, I do think. So I often feel as if I went halfway to that. I tried to adopt a lifestyle which would enable me not to confront myself too much. But I ended up as a stand-up in, ironically, one of the most uh, self-reflective professions you could possibly. But I mean, writing is different again, isn't it? Because well, like, your book is enormously personal for a start. Hmm. But it is nonetheless, it's a particular version of you. It's only one version of yourself, I suppose. Yes, but I can really relate to what you're saying, actually, because I think I'm the same. I didn't really succeed that well in acting to the point where it's, it's all I do. In fact, I've done it for a long time. It became apparent to me that perhaps similar to you, I needed to do something in my own name and confront things in myself and not just try and be other people and evade that. So actually, a lot of my work now is to do with me and it's first person and it's very personal and exposing. Mm. Your memoir, book is, we're going to say, incredible. is an enormous example of that, obviously. Yeah. yeah. What made you decide to write such an intensely personal thing? I guess I had been exposing a side of myself that was quite fun and playful, and I wanted to hang on to that, but also express a different side of myself, which was deeper and more painful, but also in the knowledge that that can actually be helpful to other people. When people mm. are able to share the fullness of themselves, it means you can... Again, it's that place of having a home somewhere somewhere in the culture you can relate to. And there are things that we, we'd rarely talk about. So in the book, there's child abuse, grief, depression, eating disorders, racism. The big five, the top five big game hunts. The safari of misery. <laughs> <laughs> that was the first title. Yes. You went for I Never Tell I Loved You in the end. Yeah. But it could so easily have been the safari of misery. Which is another pitch that I wasn't able to get commissioned for whatever reason. <laughs> It's chronic depression, my dear Mark. <laughs> I'm starting to think that titles are my issue, really, rather than ideas. <laughs> but yes, if you have the platform, the opportunity to talk about things, especially that, that are hard to talk about, that can actually be really helpful for other people. And I remember when I was growing up, there weren't the many brown people that had that platform that I could relate to. And I thought, well, you know, whatever small way, I do have some sort of profile and I am a person of colour and I'm a man that is conflicted about the idea of masculinity and I've had all these other experiences, a lot of which are actually seen as quite female, interestingly, things like eating disorders, self-harm are seen as sort of female issues. And I thought, well, that's not always the case. Men 
can suffer in these ways too. And I thought that was, that was important to bring to light. So there's a very sort of overwhelmingly earnest, quite noble <laughs> uh, motive behind it all. You wrote the book as a pure act of altruism towards civilization, is what you're saying. Just sheer Christ-like <laughs> generosity and compassion of spirit. But there's something in it about you talking about being known for being funny and positive and then showing this other side of you as well and kind of showing that neither one negates the other because you've always been both the whole way through. Mm. And showing the entirety of one person, I think, is really brilliant. And especially, like you're saying, within the brown community, it's known a lot with brown people that you don't talk about your feelings and it's more mm. about your grades. And when will you be a doctor? So I think it's really, it is really important without blowing too much smoke up at you. Uh, <laughs> I oh, think both it's really, of us. <laughs> well, well, not really me. I just did a bit of baking. Um, but but you, you've done something genuinely noble. He didn't even get to the final, right? <laughs> I know it. I live with David Atherton the winner of that series. No, you don't. Hang on a minute. He lives in the same building as me. Not anymore. He's just moved. Has he just moved? Because, because, because of you. Because of, you. Because of yeah. me. Yeah. Oh. I tell you what, it's a slap in the face to Michael even to be reminded <laughs> of the bakers that won, let alone to find out someone is yeah. shacked up with them. He's going he's gonna to take this really hard. I remember once Rick had said something particularly... So Rick, if you don't know, used to do the Guardian's live blog of Bake Off and he'd said something particularly acerbic, <laughs> I think, about <laughs> David. And then the next day, David messaged me and he was like... Rick lives in my, <laughs> in my apartment block. And now you live in his head as well. <laughs> Such an awkward encounter. Um, do you think either of you that that, it's not something I've thought about that much, even though there is a sort of a well-known trope that, you know, you're, you're, it's about your grades, it's, are you going to be a doctor, all this sort of stuff. Would you say things are changing for brown for the brown community, the brown community. <laughs> would you say that it's easier now to the be malted loaf <laughs> i hesitated before it because it is what michael said but it's a, it's a peculiar phrase isn't it the whole meal skinned among us <laughs> yeah, do, you, do you think in whole meal circles it is now um is it getting easier is there more of a we talk sometimes about whether men as a group are becoming progressively better at addressing these things do you think among your kind of community it's like is it still the case that there aren't many or are there more brown models role models of, of the type of masculinity that you didn't used to see as much i don't know about your experience rick but i think my experience of it i would say i think it is more challenging to talk about more openly i think people aren't as open to sharing experiences and i think you see a lot more of the masculine feminine roles in a house or in a family or things like that still now still now having said that though when you hear a whole meal circle person talking about their experiences. I really hope this is fine. I really do. I'm, just, I'm a white guy. I'm very much just being led by you here. The proper name for a whole meal circle is Roti. <laughs> just to put that in there. Oh, and now a bit of baking humor as well. So when you speak to a male within the Roti, and when they do open up, it becomes more powerful. And, yeah. and their experiences, especially when they talk about racism or anything like that, their experiences are so stark and fascinating and they almost become more meaningful because they aren't shared as much i don't know what you think rick i would agree with that. yes i was going to ask what was the response to your book among people around you because it really is very exposing i've had an incredible response people really yeah i mean it seemed to resonate with a, a number of people and they people get in touch all the time and say yeah. wonderful things and share quite often quite sad stories mm. but you know it's but among the people that have that you've like friends or family or because it's one of the things that I think deters me from writing more personal stuff than I already do. Is It's very hard to not think about the response of people that you're going to have to actually see. Was that mm. difficult? It is difficult. It's been overwhelmingly great, but there are definitely unpredictable consequences 
some people you really worry about turn out to absolutely love something you've done and some people that you think will be fine actually uh you know something chafes them or they don't they don't like it and it's it's just impossible to know so it is a really strange thing to navigate uh, presumably you'll you'll go on to continue mining your own self a bit more because it's hard to go back once you've done that i would have thought i don't know I'd like to move away from it. I've done, or maybe you've said it all. <laughs> I've done quite a lot of it, and actually, I think all artists are always using themselves anyway, and you don't always need to do it in quite such an openly personal way. I suppose it's true. So I'm interested yeah. in writing more fiction, for example, in the future, or moving away from my specific point of view. Yeah, so I don't think I'm chained to that sort of confessional mode. At least I hope I'm not. But also. I like life writing and drawing from real life and sort of narrativizing real life events and things and people. I think this would be, or soon it'd be a good chance to ask him about the death thing. Can the I death. do that? Well, I'm yeah. going to hold you on the death thing just yeah. one second. Just put me in a queue and I'm going <laughs> yeah, to. You want to talk about right. death, I'm with you. I mean, he spends all his time resting, so he's kind of, he's kind of prepping for death. Yeah, he's really. more or less dead already. I'm constantly ready for death. <laughs> if you lie down enough then death isn't so much of a transition I suppose maybe I'll try that I'm always standing up is my thing I'm really interested just to hear a bit more I mean I did a bit of speaking about my experience of masculinity within the brown mm-hmm. within my roti and I am interested in hearing what your what your thoughts are on that in terms of your world yes I did want to come back to that I think you're right I think in more traditional societies and cultures that get then sort of exported around the planet it is still a much more divided gender landscape so actually it's not like there's one state of play and one conversation that occurs across say our country and our culture because when I talk about the mental health conversation I'm aware that it's usually to a middle class and mostly white audience and actually that doesn't represent everyone and I think in the roti there is (laughs) obvious exceptions there are there is a new generation of people that do feel freer and more able to talk about these things but there's still a lot of more traditional thinking and gender setups in households. And what do you think would break that down as this Christ-like figure that you are now mm. after <laughs> following? As somebody with the power to affect global change <laughs> as, you, as you are. Um, I have an impulse to say, I don't know if it is our place to break that down. Well, I suppose that is a good answer. Yeah. I mean, it's a slight odd answer because it sounds like a, the wrong answer. But yeah, I don't, I actually don't have a savior complex in terms of those things and i've never thought i had a monopoly on truth and the way people should live their lives it'd be nice if more people thought like that quite honestly mm. oh it'd be lovely in any culture it's sort of a mistake to think things as good or bad and even sort of better and worse there's just good and bad in every social arrangement mm. and it's how you navigate the specificities of the one you're in that's your concern but in terms of changing other people's that's a really difficult question 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. I can't hold Mark off anymore. <laughs> let's, let's talk about yes. death. It is something of a sideways step in the conversation. But the reason that I'm interested is because... Um, well, one rarely sees somebody talk about being fixated on death and baking in the same paragraph. <laughs> Michael bangs on about baking quite a lot, but he almost never seems to consider the idea of his flesh being eaten by worms to a degree I find disappointing. What I'm interested in is that you, you talk about it. I've got a paragraph in front of you here about the idea that death leaps into your mind while baking, specifically. And the reason I'm, I think it is pertinent to our conversation, apart from the fact that death, of course, shadows all of our uh, actions on this planet is that it is again a not particularly fashionable thing i don't know if it's necessarily an unmasculine topic but i think it's pretty hard to talk to other men i've very rarely spoken to my father about death and he's in his uh, late 60s now and i hope he'll live for a long time to come but if i did speak to him he'd say um he's of the school of oh nothing much to worry about you won't know about it will you and that's like most men i've ever spoken to about death the, their answer to what i find a very troubling idea is Either you don't know, you won't know about it, which I think is, is the essence of the terror, or there's nothing you can do about it, which again is not comforting at all. Or people say things like, "Well, before you were born, you didn't mind it, did you?" And I say, well, no, but if before I had been born, I'd been told that there'd be a billion years in front of me where I wouldn't exist, I bloody would have minded. So, I suppose what I'm saying is, I don't very often get to have this conversation. But when you talk about this fixation rather than fear, is how you describe it, it's normally is in the past tense. So basically, I wonder if you've got over it or whether or like how you find ways to live alongside it you've also said my life is so boring awareness of death has always been with me and i don't know if that's facetious or not but it did chime with me because i recognize myself as someone that fills life with an extraordinary amount of different activities in order not to think about mm. uh, the end of it yes so uh what's your take how do i get over it <laughs> good question mark really well worded think, as well. well he's kind of a yes. savior figure well, yes as your savior figure actually living your life is the more courageous path and it's it's hard if you have this this fixation with death. Uh, in, answer, in answer to your question, I it hasn't left me. It's changed, and I hope that it continues to transform. And I can see the, mm-hmm. like you, there are positive aspects to it. The finitude of life is what gives it meaning. Yeah, I don't mind that as an answer. People have tried that one on me before. <laughs> <laughs> Philosophically, it is kind of yes, satisfying, not, I suppose. If life didn't end, it wouldn't mean anything. It's not enough. It doesn't take away the terror when the terror comes but allows you to cycle through it a bit quicker or to ameliorate it in some way but it was a really great summation by you of the ways people that don't have this fixation just don't get it uh, a micro fear of my fear of death is that i'm specifically terrified of thunderstorms mm. being struck by yes. lightning and once again people are to my mind bewilderingly incapable of empathizing with it they will always say well you're not going to be struck mm. because you're not a tree the tallest thing always gets struck they offer advice on how to deal with it which 
but they are offering logical solutions to a totally illogical yes. uh, fear. And I have, uh, as a man, an awful lot of illogical, irrational, and uncontrollable impulses, fears, and thoughts, which most other men, yeah, seem to want to argue me out of. Yes, men and rationality is not always the hammer you need to solve all problems. Because brains aren't rational and humans aren't yeah. meant to function that rationally, I don't think. Yeah. I'm like you. I Every situation I'm in, I, I can see where death might creep in. <laughs> like I, I literally cross the road and I can hear the car, the drunk driver scream around the corner. I, or I just picture someone behind me with a bat about to bring it down. I'm like, right, you're into this. This is good. <laughs> I need, I need this chat. We'll still convert Michael, you watch. He's rubbing his thighs as we speak, Rick. It's horrible. Michael. Yeah, I'm the same. It's not rational. So you can't you can't speak to those problems rationally. You have to try and understand what's going on below that. Yeah, because of course men are, have traditionally been raised to fight in wars or to at least think about fighting in wars. Generations of men had to just go to war and more or less accept they were going to die. And the cultural idea remains that as a man, you should be like, well, I'll get on with it, whatever it is, even if it is living in near perpetual terror of something. Mm. Again, I'm not saying women are intrinsically better at anatomizing their fears, but they do seem to just be more open to the idea of having a go at it or something. I think emotional language has definitely been culturally passed on between women because they've often had bigger problems to have to deal with amongst themselves with only mm. themselves to support. So they have more of a, a framework for it. But I think a lot of men are catching up now and becoming interested in their own feelings and what's going on inside them we've not actually asked about men you admire have we i'm assuming he admires himself i do not admire myself at all really we sometimes do ask what people you think are good examples of any form of masculinity men that you admire walking around in the world today um present company excluded we always have to say that yeah no one apart from you guys really (laughs) (laughs) just pick through the the scraps of what's left okay of what's left it could be somebody personal to you or it it can be anybody but are there any examples of people that you look up to i'm always drawn to nobility in men so figures like barack obama or even actors uh chadwick boseman the sadly mm, yeah, past yeah. Black Panther actor. I just thought he had a wonderful sort of regal bearing and a sense of depth to him. And it was, I was really quite affected by his death. These are also quite handsome men again, yeah. I think. It feels as if you associate yes, physical yeah. beauty and nobility in together somehow, conflate them somehow. Yes. Maybe we all but do. But it's a certain type of beauty as well. When I was young, I remember really being fascinated by Brando and Newman. You know, these, these beautiful actors mm. are also... Mm they had this sensitivity and actually i think that's what a lot of the beauty that shone through them was about it's particularly in brando is where it's so polarized you have this ultra masculinity physically but also this real raw sensitivity and pain and conflict internal conflict and that's what's so compelling about him i think to anyone you know yeah which is interesting isn't it because it's easy to say in your head oh Men were men in the old days, and now we're. It's easy to convince yourself that we didn't have those kind it's of always uh, been there. ambivalent. It has to have always been there. It's just that again, we maybe didn't have the language. Yeah, it ties into the final question we always ask, which is: if you're building a man from scratch, go with me. <laughs> Your face is not looking like it's wanting to go with me, but go with me. Well, why don't you use the usual the usual uh, thing the, that you do to tease Rick? Rick's up. quite intelligent. <laughs> and I don't want to like. I think if we were worried about being intellectually cowed by Rick, the 45 minutes it took us to operate our computer would have been the moment to start fretting about Okay, that. Rick. Okay, Rick. Have you heard of... Also, I've used some cracking words in this. The, the safari of misery will go down... I'm getting that tattooed on my ankle as we speak. <laughs> Just the ankle? <laughs> it's the sequel that he's getting. Um, have you heard of a Build-A-Bear workshop? 
Oh, yes. Yes. So imagine... There you go. See, that was an intellectual's response. He had to think about it, but it was there. <laughs> yeah. It was there somewhere. Burrowed I am aware books. that these things exist yeah. in the world. Perfect. There you novels. are. It's not on my personal <laughs> radar, but I accept it could be a thing. <laughs> I believe Hemingway says something like Build-A-Bear once. <laughs> uh, last night, I watched X-Men Origins Wolverine. I am not an intellectual. That's better. <laughs> it's so bad. <laughs> Drag him down. <laughs> it's really bad. Imagine... A build a bear workshop, but you're building a man and you're trying to embed within that man three qualities. Why am I building a man? I've been single for a long time, Rick, and it's really important. Okay. <laughs> it's the first time someone has interrogated the terms of the question, Rick. I'm really fascinated I told by you, it. He wouldn't be cowed. <laughs> Is the idea that you're then going to populate a society with men in this mold? It's possible we haven't thought through all of the ramifications of this re- device. I hadn't really thought no one's <laughs> questioned it as much <laughs> he's right it's troubling if all men in the world from now on have to, have to embody fit this yes. template. So let's say it's just you're just making an, uh, okay. a nominal one man you're making a nominal one man that will be perfect for me but i don't know you <laughs> hang on for you i mean i don't know what you're looking for you shouldn't turn this into tinder live i don't think <laughs> for the first time i'm bailing on the builder bear not the pause. question but I'm, I think, well i didn't want to ask the builder bear question i'm going to, to I, I, I hold myself responsible <laughs> i'm going to put it as a purely philosophical non-bear related non-earth sign <laughs> question <laughs> were you to name three qualities that a man ideally ought to have what would you go for and do not think about bears i would say empathy humor vision vision as in like vision is really able to see or just able to see things i hate the blind just two eyes <laughs> there is There's the title, the title. Yeah. <laughs> think of the clicks <laughs> Think of the clicks. But, but yeah, by vision, you mean the ability to sort of see the bigger picture, yes. the willingness to look at thing, the totality of things. Yes, because we associate masculinity, and I would separate that from a gender identity. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. The idea of masculinity is something assertive that has a platform in the world, is, is takes up space and is vocal and pursues goals and objects with vitality, that sort of solidity. I think uh-huh. that can be dangerous or just quite not particularly useful or interesting if it's just self-interested definitely but if someone can use that that solidity and that platform however you want to see it in terms of bringing other people up bringing important issues to light or helping others or just bringing joy spreading something positive in the world that kind of vision is what i mean that sort of sense of looking beyond your own borders and trying to to be the tide that raises all boats or however you want to think about it Mm. That's really nice, I think. I also think that empathy is the, one of the best possible answers to this because it covers almost everything. Mm. Being the tide that rises all the boats is also a very lovely phrase. It's been a really writerly episode, this, mm. I think. I think people are going to enjoy it. We're going to get the book crowd in. <laughs> <laughs> the famously lucrative book that crowd. That lucrative, huge book crowd that are really into podcasts yep. about masculinity. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us, Rick. It's been really fascinating. It's been, it's been great, yeah. It's been a joy. Oh, I'll see you on the other side when we both perish, I suppose. That was Rick Samata. <laughs> we also need to ask you to plug things. Do you have anything to plug? Oh, yeah. Where do people like find you anything or such like? So now I have nothing to plug. The book, obviously, we've mentioned, but once more, it's called, the book is called I Never Said I Loved You. If you'd forgotten the title then, that would have been... All I could think of was The Safari of Misery, but I, <laughs> we'll give it its real title. And then you're on Twitter and... Yes, I'm on social media. But yeah, the book is the big, is my really, I put my soul into the book. Go on, plug your Twitter handle, though, because it is good. <laughs> my Twitter is What's the Matter. Very good. Very good. Thank you so much, Rick. Oh, it's been an absolute joy. Thanks, guys. Rick Samada, thank you very much. Well, it's funny because um, just because of the content of Rick's book and, and what we knew about his lifestyle, we thought it might be one of the, the gloomiest chats, actually, this one. Um, and it was almost the opposite, wasn't it, really? 
Well, yes, I mean, you can hear from my absolute cackle all the way through it. I was having a marvellous time. Brilliant, brilliant guest. And we have also heard some brilliant messages from all of you through our emails and Instagrams and Twitters. I had a lovely message from my friend Rebecca, who got in touch to say that she really enjoyed the conversation with Jamie, especially the conversation around things being thought of as political. And it's been articulating something that she's really been trying to work out for quite a long time. Why is you simply using the correct pronouns for somebody a political act and why are thinking that black lives matter a political act and why is believing that every child should be fed a political act and she said that she was having a genuine epiphany and that it's probably because people just can't cope with change so she really enjoyed listening to it and thank you very much to rebecca for getting in touch that was really lovely to hear uh, also a lovely message from somebody we don't know personally at least i don't think so called leon leon says mark and michael so that's uh, just traditional beginning. That's us. Probably should be Michael and Mark. No, uh, Leon has gone for Mark and Michael. It's a shame. <laughs> been meaning to drop you both a message way earlier, but just wanted to say what a brilliant podcast this is. I've been going out for daily lunchtime walks to get away from my desk. Mankind has now become a Monday staple. Thanks for your humour and insightfulness. You're doing exactly what we should be doing more of as a society, reaching across divides and learning how those different to us experience life. Men in particular are awful at this. Well done. Please keep it up. And then one of those emojis that is like a smiling face with a bit of a blush, sort of co- oh, yes. a cosy smile emoji. Like the eyes have kind of become lines because they're so happy. One of those Yeah, ones. that's right. I would say going out for walks is brilliant. I mean, I work through the week, as people probably know, and I've had a bit of a bad brain week this week, but I have found going out for walks at lunchtime has been really good because it means you get away from your desk. So I agree. It's also good for our podcast because the sort of uh, situation where people listen to podcasts is True. going for a walk. So that's our target market, people who go out the door and then think, what the hell do I do now? I've forgotten about this. If you could do like 45 minutes, that's probably enough time for you to listen to the podcast and then get on whatever app you're listening to it on and review it because we really create your validation. We really do want that. So maybe actually budget for a 48-minute walk on your Monday. True, good and, point. and then that yeah. gives you three minutes of admin just to like, subscribe, and do all sorts of stuff to boost the uh, <laughs> the famously unstable egos of Watson and Chakraverty. We really appreciate it, and we continue to read everything that you send. Thank you very much. Yes, and we'll speak to you next week when we have Alistair Campbell. Can you believe? You know, this and other issues, I really do think that sometimes positive discrimination is the only way that you make the change that you need to make. Mm. We change the selection so that in certain seats there had to be a woman candidate, and a lot of those women won. Thereafter, forever to be known, dubbed by, dubbed by the way, a word that is only ever used in newspapers, never used in real life, <laughs> dubbed by the newspapers as Blair's Babes. Blair's Babes, yeah, that awful phrase came into my head as I was asking you the question. And you're mm. right, they were dubbed that. And it's also true, you'd never see that out. A bit like romp is only ever in newspapers. Yeah, romp, three in a bed romp or a five in a bed romp. You just see any other in newspapers. <laughs> romp shame. Hello, do you fancy a romp? Uh, no, it's, it's, it's not an easy thing to get going outside of a newspaper, is it? <laughs> Yes, not many people would expect this, probably, but... Least of all us, I have to say. <laughs> this is what they call a handbrake turn. For reasons that are too complicated to go into, we suddenly booked the um, infamous figure of Alistair Campbell. <laughs> one of the relatively few straight guests. Well, to be fair, we've just had one. We have, but on the whole, the straights are still losing. Which is what we love to see in culture. <laughs> yes, it's, 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 it is not exactly an accident. <laughs> uh, and one of, I'd say one of very few guests we've had who have been the best friend and close associate of uh, a Prime Minister. So a a different kind of conversation again, this one. Yes, one to look forward to. And we will see you then. (laughs) Yes, we will. See you, listen to, will be, how do we say that? You don't really say see. We will connect with you then. That sounds weird as well. That sounds like you're swiping, doesn't it? Yeah, sorry, I'm too old to say (laughs) stuff like that. (laughs) Bye. (laughs) 
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.